So that's 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23, reading through chapter 11, verse 8. And it reads this way. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q. And the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. This morning I want to speak to you from this thing. Stand, lest ye fall. Stand, lest ye fall. Let's look to the Lord this morning uh, in prayer as we seek to understand uh, this passage this morning. Father, we thank you. Lord, for your word, we pray, God, that you would uh, be with us as we uh, seek to gain a better understanding of what you're trying to communicate to us in this passage this morning. We pray, God, that you would open up our eyes, pray that you would give me grace, Lord, to communicate truth to your people clearly. And I pray, God, that your word, which will be communicated, that it would do the work of sanctifying our hearts, that it would call us to faith and repentance, that it will bring us to our knees in worship of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is said that Plato wrote the first sentence of his famous Republic nine different ways before he was satisfied. Cicero practiced speaking before friends every day for 30 years to perfect his elocution. Noah Webster labored 36 years writing his dictionary, crossing the Atlantic twice to gather material. 
English poet John Milton arose 4 a.m. every day in order to have enough time for his work, Paradise Lost. Edward Gibbons spent 26 years on his work, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And the great poet Bryant wrote one of his poetic masterpieces 99 times before publication, and it became a classic. Now, what do all these men have in common? Well, these men were dedicated. They were committed to finishing the work that they started. I wonder, do you know what it's like to be dedicated? Our brother Mike Afalabi, he was dedicated. He finished his studies at Morgan State University, and he got his bachelor's degree. Brothers and sisters, do you know what it's like to be so determined, to be so focused on a goal, on a task, and see it through until its completion? Or you see, as Christians, we're called to be dedicated to seeing our salvation through until the end. Salvation is sort of a threefold reality. So think past, present, future. So in the past, the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible declared that you're saved, that you were justified, declared righteous before God. As a result of your justification, you were then adopted into God's family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it reads this way. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It says you have been saved. That's past tense. So let's look at the present reality. The Bible speaks of salvation as this ongoing process. So those who are in Christ Jesus, who are currently believing in Jesus Christ, continue to experience salvation. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the believer is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ right now, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, reads this way. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. That's present tense. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So salvation is a present reality just as much as it is a past reality. But let's look at the future reality. And this is what I want you guys to really hone in on. Christians will experience salvation in the future. Right, Romans chapter 5 verse 9 tells us, it says, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. We shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. So salvation's future reality points forward to our glorification. Or what is glorification? Well, glorification is a future work of God in which the dead will be raised and the new bodies will finally usher in into the kingdom of heaven. Our bodies will be free from all of sin's corruptions. Now, as I look around, I don't see anybody with a glorified body. So that means that there's work still as, as work that still needs to be done, right? None of us have obtained this state of glorification. None of us have obtained this state of perfection. We are in the present, and in this moment, sin is still very much a reality. Sin is still crouching at your door. And I'm concerned that too often we can adopt this mentality that we have already reached perfection. We can sometimes become complacent in our Christian walk. We let our spiritual God down. Church, don't you realize that Satan 
Our great adversary is like a roaring lion. And he's roaming around seeking someone to devour. Family, are you determined to finish the race that God has set before you? My aim this morning is to provide us with some encouragement to persevere in the faith until our race is over. Until God's work of salvation becomes a future reality. In our passage this morning, we're going to look at the end of King Solomon's life. Let me give you a little context. So 1 Kings is a continuation of 1 and 2 Samuel. If you remember, Israel, they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. So they asked God for a human king. So God granted their request. He gave them King Saul. Now, King Saul wasn't a good king. So God raises up King David. King David was a good king. King David was like the model king. In fact, he's even referred to as a man after God's own heart. So King David became sort of the standard or the measuring rod for all the other kings that would come after him. And King Solomon was King David's son. So in chapters 1 through 11 of 1 King, we see the reign of King Solomon. All right, so chapter 1 of 1 King, Solomon is chosen over Adonijah to succeed David. Chapter 2, David gives his final charge to Solomon before his death. Uh, chapter 3, Solomon asks God for wisdom, and it is granted to him. And we see this wisdom on display as Solomon handles this dispute between these two women uh, involving this baby. Chapter 4, his wisdom is manifested even more through his careful administration. Chapter 5, he sets out to build the temple of the Lord. Chapter 6, he actually builds the temple. He completes it. Chapter 7, he turns to building his palace, which is followed by uh, furnishing the temple. In chapter 8, we see the glory of the Lord fill the temple. And Solomon, he dedicates the temple uh, to God. Uh, we see this beautiful prayer and like this, this dedication ceremony. And Solomon just bursts out in worship and praise and worship. Chapter 9, the Lord appears to Solomon a second time. and He warns him against idolatry. He warns him against uh, being disobedient. He tells him about the consequences that will follow if Solomon disobeyed. Chapter 10, we see the summary of Solomon's wisdom and his wealth. Now, King Solomon was a very wise and, and wealthy king. He was famous for his wisdom. God's people were prospering under Solomon's leadership. In fact, chapter 4, verse 20, it reads, it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. And it's no coincidence that Solomon enjoyed uh, God's blessings because central to Solomon's blessings was his relationship with God. In chapter 3, verse 3, we find out that Solomon, it says, Solomon loved the Lord and that he walked in the statues of David, uh, his father. Now, unfortunately, the story of Solomon's life doesn't end in chapter 10. It would be nice if it did end in chapter 10. But there is a chapter 11, the first Kings. And as we see things take a turn for King Solomon. In chapter 11, we see Solomon's sin, which led to his downfall. Look at verse 4 of chapter 11 of our text. It says, it says this, and I think this is the key verse. It says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. What happened to Solomon? 
Like everything was going so well up until this point. Back in chapter 3, we're told that Solomon loved the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that, that wasn't a misprint. Right? We, weren't, we weren't under uh, some type of illusion when we read that. Solomon actually loved the Lord. But you see, I think Solomon's story is a sobering reminder that even someone of Solomon's stature, someone as great, as wise, as wealthy as Solomon, even someone like him is still capable of falling into sin. No amount of wealth, wisdom, prestige, I don't care how great you are in this life, you are not above sin. You are still capable of falling into sin. Brothers and sisters, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't think that you are above sin, at least not in this lifetime. In this life, sin is a reality. It's a present reality. In the life to come, sin will be no more. But we're not there yet. The main point I want to communicate to you this morning is this. You can't be fully devoted to God and yet cling to idols. It's impossible to serve two masters. Solomon's heart wasn't wholly devoted to the Lord, unlike David, his father. In this moment, as you examine your heart, ask yourself this question. What or who are you devoted to? Where does your loyalty lie? We want to finish our race well, and we want to be whole, and we have to be wholly devoted to God. We cannot let anything get in the way of being devoted to God. I want to spend some time tracing the steps of Solomon's decline, and hopefully we can learn from Solomon's story so we don't make the same mistakes. So the first problem I think we see here is is Solomon's excessive lifestyle. So King Solomon was the man, right? Verse 23 of chapter 10 says that he excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Look, this dude had it all. If we jump back a little further in chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, we see his wealth. He has 666 talents of gold that will come to him every year. That's about 25 tons of gold. And I'm not the smartest person in this room. I'm not a mathematician. But I know that that's a lot of gold. 25 tons of gold. And that doesn't even include the additional revenue that he received from merchants, from the traders, from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the land at that time. How many of you are familiar with MTV Cribs? I don't even think that show like airs anymore, but that was a show where like celebrities, entertainers, athletes, right, they would, they would splurge their wealth and they would have this like camera crew kind of follow them around, they would give you a tour of their multi-million dollar homes, their luxury cars, jewelry, everything. And this is what we see here in verse, verses 14 through 22, as we see Solomon's wealth. Now look, no celebrity could match King Solomon dollar for dollar. None. He had so much gold that silver didn't even have much value at that time. Even his drinking vessels were made of gold. If you look through my cabinets or cupboard, whatever you want to call it, you're not going to find that, like plastic. Okay? Now, is there something evil about 
being wealthy? No. It's not a sin to, to have wealth. But you see, there is a danger in acquiring riches, in acquiring uh, wealth. I believe wealth gives, gives us a false sense of security in this idea that we are self-sufficient, that we don't need anything, that we don't need God. Wealth can be an idol, a little God that we worship, a God that our hearts are devoted and loyal to. Let me tell you what I mean. So I heard a story once of this wealthy man. He owned this island, and he invited his friends out to the island. And he's having a conversation with one of his friends, and he tells him, he says, sometimes I have to remind myself that I need God, because when I look around, it's hard to believe that I actually do. What was that man saying? Well, he was saying that he had so much wealth. His possessions were so great that he was tempted to to believe that, look, he, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need God. This man had put his trust in all his wealth, and he failed to see his need for God. This story reminds me of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, where it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? I wonder what in your life is causing you to be full and deny the Lord. What is causing you to forget about God? What is, impe- what is impeding you from being fully devoted to following God? For you, maybe it's not wealth. It's definitely not wealth for me. I'm not wealthy. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's leisure, work. Maybe it's family. I think what we're seeing here is that Solomon forgot about God. God had blessed him tremendously with wisdom and wealth. Verse 24 tells us that the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Verse 25 tells us that when they came to Solomon, they would bring many gifts, and these gifts allowed Solomon to multiply his possessions of gold and silver and horses. And we see that Solomon's excessive lifestyle also included many women. Chapter 11, verse 3 tells us that he has 700 wives, 300 concubines. Solomon's excessive lifestyle had become a snare. When one has as much as Solomon, it's easy to forget about God. It's easy to put your hope and trust in things created rather than the creator himself. We can be so foolish at times. We can often put our trust in temporal things, things that don't last, things that will perish, little sandcastles that will be swept away by the storms of life. Brothers and sisters, we're called to trust in God. And who is God? Well, God is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. He's the eternal one. He's infinite. He's unchangeable. And his goodness and glory, his power and perfection, his wisdom, his justice, his truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. This is who we're called to trust in. So first, Solomon's excessive lifestyle, I think that led to his downfall. And number two, 
The second problem was his disobedience. Let me tell you what I mean. So back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God speaking through Moses, he prohibited king, the kings of Israel from acquiring excessive horses, wives, silver, or gold, so that their heart wouldn't be turned away from trusting in the Lord. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 17 reads this way. It says this, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Solomon did exactly what God had forbidden. We see this in chapter 10. We just went over it. Chapter 10, we examine his great wealth. And this wealth was more than God had allowed the kings. In chapter 11, we see Solomon's forbidden marriage relationships. Look at chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 3. It reads this way. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Why does Solomon have so many wives? Well, some scholars believe that during that time in the ancient Near East, if a man had many wives, it was sort of a status symbol. It symbolized importance and, and, and wealth. Other scholars believe it was simply he had so many marriage partners because of sexual lust. One woman wasn't enough for King Solomon. In fact, in Proverbs, we learn it says that the eyes of a man are never satisfied. And yet some other scholars believe that Solomon's marriages were for the purpose of ratifying treaties with other nations, which was a common practice during that time. But look, regardless of the reason, Solomon clearly disobeyed God. Verse 2 says, Solomon clung to these in love. That word clung means unswerving loyalty. Solomon, he loved his wives and was very loyal to his wives. And this led him to abandon his loyalty to the Lord and then ultimately to worship idols. His heart was divided. Solomon's heart was divided between his many wives, pleasure, self, wealth, and God was sprinkled in there somewhere. Let's look at it this way. Solomon clung to his sin and not to God. Brothers and sisters, is your heart divided this morning? In what ways are you susceptible to turning away from the Lord? Do you love your sin more than you love God? What does it mean when you say you love the Lord? Or do you just spew out empty words? Do you just mean it casually? Do you love the Lord only in word? Verse 4 says this. His wives turned away his heart. His wives turned away his heart when he was old. Brothers and sisters, whether you are a new Christian or you've been a Christian for many years, God's standards don't change. God expects personal, perfect, perpetual obedience throughout our lifetime. 
Solomon's sin wasn't excused because he was old or because he was just so great of a king. Solomon was greatly blessed over his lifetime. But we can't forget that he greatly sinned. Solomon abused the many gifts God had granted him. Verses 5 through 8 and tell us of Solomon's idolatry. It reads this way. Starting at verse 5, it says, For Solomon when, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Verse 6, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. This great king Solomon, not only did he tolerate idolatry, but he practiced it. And he was open with his idolatry. He offered sacrifices and offerings to these, these pagan gods. As wise as Solomon was, he became a fool and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. I can't think of a sadder ending to someone's life than what we see here with Solomon. As great of a life that Solomon lived, all the wisdom, the wealth he had, his disobedience became his most significant legacy. What a terrible legacy to leave behind to your children. You see, as a result of his disobedience, the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel was divided. And this marks Israel's decline toward destruction and, and exile. Solomon shouldn't have been shocked by God's judgment. God told him back in chapter 9, he warned him about the consequences of disobedience. In chapter 9, starting in verse 4, it says this, And as for you, if you walk before me, as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David, your fathers, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Verse 8, And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. What a sad ending to Solomon's life. But let me quickly point out that there is a measure of hope that we see here in Solomon's life. Two quick things. One, Solomon's life reminds us that material blessings will never provide fulfillment. Material blessings will never provide fulfillment. Solomon had it all. He had all the resources of life, health, wealth, wisdom, power, fame, sex, and anything else that might satisfy us in this life. 
When we chase after these material things, the temporal things, the Bible says it's like chasing after wind. It's vanity. Not only did these things not satisfy Solomon, but they got in the way of him being fully devoted to God. Our, search for, our constant search for fulfillment, it comes from discontentment. The Apostle Paul, now he was one who was content. Remember his words to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13? It reads this way. It says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now look, in no way does Paul deny the reality of his needs. But he explains that he is content to live in any situation. According to Paul, his contentment wasn't found in possessions. Paul's contentment wasn't found in favorable external circumstances. You remember when he's writing that letter, he's in jail. There's nothing favorable about sitting in a prison cell. But yet Paul had an inner peace and joy about him, which let us know that the nature of contentment is a matter of the heart. It's an inward disposition, and that's something that material things can't give you. I wonder how many can say that they are content in life. Number two, Solomon's life reminds us that great gifts don't excuse great sin. Great gifts don't excuse great sin. Solomon was greatly gifted. He was the wisest and the wealthiest of all of Israel's kings. This man even built the temple, the house of God. He built a place of worship for God. And guess what? God still judged Solomon. I don't care how great you are, how religious you are, how good you might think you are. Let me tell you that none of that stuff will matter when you stand before God and be judged. Your sins will not be excused because of your importance, your resume, your accolades, or your great works. God required obedience by Israel's kings. If they were going to receive his blessings, they had to obey. Disobedience will bring exile. Now, early on, it appeared that Solomon was going to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. God made a promise to David one of his offspring, that one of his offsprings would rule and reign on the throne forever. None of the kings in the house of David met that condition of complete obedience. It's not until hundreds of years later that one king will come. In fact, when this king came, he didn't even look much like a king. He didn't have many resources. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. But you see, this king showed us what a life of obedience and contentment looked like. This king, his heart was wholly devoted to his father. You see the contrast here between King Solomon and King Jesus. Solomon's heart wasn't fully devoted to God. And really, Solomon represents us all. We as humans are born into this world loving and clinging to sin rather than, than God. Our heart's disposition is always toward sin. 
And just like Solomon, we too are deserving of God's judgment. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that King Jesus came and he took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life of obedience to his father. Nothing got in the way of him obeying God the Father. Now, he wasn't treated much like a king at all during his time here on earth. The people, they crucified him. They put him to death by hanging him from a cross. But you see, three days later, this king rose from the dead. This king, unlike King Solomon, who left this legacy of disobedience, well, this king left a legacy of obedience. His one act of obedience, dying on the cross for our sins, has made many to be accounted righteous. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me tell you that Jesus' perfect obedience can be given to you as a free gift by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved from God's judgment. Now, if you are a Christian, you need to persevere this morning. You need to stand firm until that great day when God calls you home and you're with him forever. Brothers and sisters, stand lest you fall. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being a God who is so gracious, for being a God who is so kind, for being a God who is so loving that you would send your son to die for us. God, we pray that we would look to you today, that we would put our trust, our hope in you, that we would make you our confidence this morning and not created things. Oh Lord, give us the grace to turn from the many idols that we have in our life and to turn to you. Lord, we cannot do this relying on our own strength, but we need your Holy Spirit to turn from idolatry, from false gods, to turn to you. Oh, Father, would you grant us this request? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.